This is episode 158 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. This episode concludes our most recent event, the 2022 Annual Enrichment Conference with Jeremy Meeks. This is session three from Tuesday night. Good evening. Oh boy. Hmm. I, I heard there was roller skating this afternoon. Some of you apparently did too much of that. Uh, Before I begin, I just want to say a few words of thanks. Thank you, James, for your leadership and for uh, having the audacity to invite me to this. (laughs) I'm still kind of weirded out that I'm here, but it's it's been a real joy to be with you. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you uh, to Eric. I don't know where Eric is. Wherever he is, God bless you, Eric. All right. And also thank you to all the other people who are doing things, who are like here, and you don't see them, but it's the reason why this is an enjoyable event, that get no credit for anything. I don't even know who all those people are. There's all kinds of people who did all kinds of things for many, many hours to make sure that you could sit here and have a good time. So I just want to give them thanks. Yeah. And I want to thank you all for uh, not only coming, but being encouraging to me. Uh, It's been fun to talk to some of you after the sessions about how this has been beneficial to you. And I hope tonight is as well. Tonight, our last time together is, again, about being biblically focused. But tonight, I want to think about the Bible and our world. I don't think I have to work very hard to convince you that we live in a confusing moment. James did an excellent job. First thing he said up here, just kind of rattled off, stealing my thunder in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of the things that we are facing. It's not any different in Chicago. It's not any different in Florida. We take on a different flavor, maybe, but we are all facing extraordinary challenges. Many pastors I talk to are tired and confused about the moment that we are in. I wonder if you're confused. I am. What we once had is lost and is never coming back. Now, this is a side note. I don't actually think it's worth keeping. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable in the moment. The culture, whatever the heck that is, seems to be against us. At least that's the way it feels. We aren't necessarily persecuted, but we are for sure no longer praised. The questions I want to ask and answer in this last session are questions like this. How do we interact with those outside the walls of our churches? How do we help our fellow brothers and sisters to do that well? And ultimately, I think the question is, is the Bible really sufficient in a secular world? I want to think about those questions and hopefully answer them by looking at Perhaps my favorite 
section in the book of Acts. There's lots of good ones in there. Acts chapter 17. We'll be in verses 16 to 34. And I want to be very clear before I start that what I am about to do, I believe would be inappropriate to do on a Sunday morning. Not, not all of it, but uh, I am gearing this very much for you as ministry leaders. This is going to be a little bit different from the previous two sermons that I've given. I want this to be sermonic in the sense of declaring from God's Word to you what He says for our benefit, but this piece of Scripture, I think, does more than just encourage us, and it would sound different on a Sunday morning if I were preaching it, and I believe there's good preaching to be had in this passage. But here, I think, we have a God-inspired clinic on how to use the Word and the world to speak about Jesus to people who don't know Him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to help us see what Paul is doing and then think briefly about how you and I can do that where we live. So hopefully you leave here encouraged that the Bible is sufficient for our secular world and also that you see that there are resources in the Word to actually train us to speak well inside and outside the walls of our churches. Let me read the passage. I'll pray. We'll go to work. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, reading through verse 34. This is what God's Word says. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know this new teaching? What this is that you're preaching? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes and our minds to both the truth of this text and the ways in which Paul went about his work in order that we might go about our work in a way that glorifies you and does good for others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to title the sermon tonight, How to Preach to a Pagan. How to Preach to a Pagan. I think there's three things that are going on in this um, rather interesting little piece of the life of Paul. I think that you've got the occasion, and you've got an oration that leads to some outcomes. That's as simple as it is. And as we look at this, I want us to leave here persuaded to the core of our being this one thing. I hope you already believe it, but I want you believing it even more. Here it is. We should talk to everyone about Jesus on their terms, and some will be saved. That's it. We should talk to everyone about Jesus on their terms, and some will be saved. Let's start with the occasion in verses 16 to 21. Here we learn that we should talk to everyone about Jesus. Paul is hanging out in Athens waiting for some friends. And as he's wandering around, it says in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He was provoked. That part makes sense. That's an understandable reaction to idols. The surprising part of it is what the next verse says. Let me just don't even read it. Let me tell you what it should say. Paul, a Jew of Jews, super Jew, had the Ten Commandments tattooed on his chest. He knew the law. Thus, having been provoked, 
He took an axe and smashed all of the idols, saying, you have broken the second commandment. That's what we would expect him to do. That would make all the sense in the world. It would be biblical, right, true, good, honoring of God, and provocative. Verse 17. So, in other words, he was provoked when he saw the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Wait a second. That doesn't seem quite right. Here's the question I want to ask you. Are you like Paul? Here's the moves. First of all, do you see? Are you looking? Are you observing the idols around you? It's not that hard, by the way. You just got to go walk around. Having seen, do you get provoked? Or are you just like, it's just the way it is? Does it actually make you upset? I think some of us are like, yeah, keep going. All right. And in your provocation, do you reason? Not burn people to the ground on Twitter or Facebook. Not set up a 42-week sermon series about the gays or whatever. Do you reason? Notice how idolatry has a cultural and communal effect. Paul's provocation caused him to reason in both religious and secular spaces. The shocking thing is that he goes to the synagogue first. Now, that was his typical move, but the provocation of the idols sent him to the synagogue. In other words, the Jews were just as affected by all the idols as everybody else. Your people, friends, are affected by the idols in our world. But he didn't stay there. He also went to the marketplace and talked to whoever was there. He's speaking to everyone, and so should we. Even the philosophers get interested. What do the philosophers get interested in? Verse 18, ready for it? Jesus and his resurrection. Now oh, we got to move beyond that. We got to talk about something real trendy or edgy. We got to move beyond the Jesus stuff in order to get to listen. People have always been interested about Jesus and his resurrection. I wonder if you know why. I will tell you. I don't know if you know this, but dead people stay dead. And you have the audacity to walk around and be like, well, in Jesus' case, he was dead, but then he wasn't dead. You go, how did that happen? You go, I don't know. God. You know what the next question they're going to ask is? Oh, yeah, who's God? Boom. Good thing you asked. Here we go. Friends, the Bible is full of weird stuff. People eating babies. I'll persuade you of that one. It, it talks about how God sent fire and brimstone talks about how God, in his provocation against sin, sent a flood and killed everybody except one dude on a boat. 
I can keep going and going and going. Friends, the Bible is the weirdest thing in the world. And as I said this morning, I think the weird parts are not only the most interesting parts, but they are some of the most important parts, both for people in the church and outside of it. You know what people on the streets are thinking? All kinds of things. Here's one of them. Is war a problem? You know what the Bible says? Oh, yeah, there's all kinds of it. It's a real big problem. Happens for all kinds of reasons. Talks about war all over the place. And one of the things you could do with the Bible is just be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's in here. Let me tell you why war is actually a problem. I want to affirm the fact that war is a thing and it's a problem. I go on for days. But the primary thing that Luke wants you to know is that the philosophers were like, who's this Jesus guy and what's his resurrection? Is that the center of whatever the heck you're talking about? It'll preach. And the minute you stop believing that, this is the minute that we're all in trouble, believer and unbeliever alike. What's instructive is <laughs> what follows from this. In verses 18, or 19 through 21, we learn something that should not come as a shock to us, but it's right here. It's the people have always been spiritually curious and into new ideas. What do, you, what do you think, friends, when you see a mosque? Or like one of those palm-reading places? P.S. Seaside is weird. Huh, I passed a couple of them today. Didn't go in because I didn't have any cash on me. Um, or the crystal shops. I saw some of those, too. Like, what do you think when you see those places? In one sense, it should provoke you. And in, the, in another sense, you should thank God for it. Why? Because they're demonstrations that humans are incurably religious. Just like they were in Paul's time. And all Paul is doing is going, huh, what do you got? Okay, yeah, I can work with this. It should break your heart and make you glad at the same time. People are fascinated about spiritual things and spiritual people, and all you and I have to do is lean in and tell them about Jesus. Paul here is clearly working out his all-things-to-all-people principle in 1 Corinthians 9. But the question is, okay, I get that, and it's cool and compelling, but how do I do it? I live on the south side of Chicago, one of the roughest places in the United States of America. Most of you don't. But whatever we're about to see, I want you to know this. This is not something for city people. This is a God-inspired demonstration of the way you and I can speak to all kinds of people, no matter who they are, when they are, or where they are. It seems impossible, but thank God we're not just told that Paul did it, but having seen the occasion, 
we also get the oration in verses 22 through 31. Here's what we learn from this section. It's that we should talk to everyone about Jesus on their terms. On their terms. This right here is a master class on oration. What the heck is oration? Good question. It's simply this, public speaking. It just begins with an O, so I put it in there because, you know, alliteration is cool and you're all Baptist, so I got to have three points anyways. This is especially a master class in regard to two parts of rhetoric, oration. Those two parts are concession and refutation. What the heck is that? Good question. Concession is the act of agreeing with the validity or apparent validity of the opponent's side. To yield to them. That's the act of concession. Imagine this, if that's, you're like, I don't, still don't know what we're talking about. Imagine it as getting into another person's boat. There's a person, they're in the boat, you get in the boat with them. You get close to the person who's in a boat, admitting that the boat seems sturdy, and that there's water under the boat, and 10,000 other things. This is a boat. Good job. Looks sturdy. It's a boat. Okay, thank you. It's concession, but it's also refutation. Having yielded to the other side, refutation is simply countering the opposing viewpoint. And there's a variety of ways to do this, but let's go back to the boat analogy. It's getting in the boat and going, this is a boat, we are on water, but notice there's water leaking all over the place. Or, I know that we're in the boat, we're trying to go to the other side, but there's no oars in the boat, so we're stuck. Concession, refutation. So I want to walk through this and see how Paul does these two things, talking about Jesus on their terms and how we might do the same. Notice verse 22 and 23. This is the beginning of it. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What is therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Concession, right out of the box. You are some religious people. And I see that. And... Uh, I just want to tell you about this one thing over here. The shock is that he doesn't say, the unknown God, I know the real God, so tear the God down. In fact, he does something that is so scandalous, I would like to put forward to you that it borders on, borders on heresy. It borders on blasphemy. He rides the line in uncomfortable ways. And I want to contend that this is exactly what we should do with the gods of our own time and place. Don't just bash them. Understand what makes them appealing 
demonstrate understanding and use them as a departure point. Let's talk about sex robots. Mm -hmm. There's lots of things we could talk about. I'll be brief. One of the reasons for sex robots is because they are a part of social progress. This comes from two camps, transhumanism and posthumanism. Here's what transhumanism says. There's a problem with all of this. I mean, not this, because again, I'm a fashion model, but with all of humanity. And the fact is we get sick and we die. It's a problem. So what we need to do is get beyond that so we don't get sick anymore, we don't die anymore. In order to get there, we need to put all of our money into getting there, which means that we need to let hungry people die and sick people die, because there's too much money going to all that, so we just need to push past it so we can upload our brains to the cloud and then use bodies whenever we want, but we don't have to have them. What does that have to do with sex robots? Here it is. We get to experiment with our future selves. That's transhumanism. Here's posthumanism. Bodies are problematic because they are gendered centers of power. And so we need to move into a space in which either gender goes away as a concept or we have so many gender categories that it's essentially irrelevant. And then we will all be one. What's up with the sex robots? Well, simply this. They're a way of experimenting with a new way of being in the world. You can put any parts on those things you want. Do not Google it. If you do, that's not on me, that's on you. Of course, the con side comes along and goes, okay, cool, so sick people don't matter. I think sick people matter. Dying, dying is a problem, but you're actually exacerbating human pain for the promise of something on the other side that will make us all fine? And, and, and you post-humanists, so let me get this right. Bodies are problematic because they're gendered centers of power, so women don't matter. It's weird that it's a bunch of mostly white, mostly men who are making all of these arguments. And by the way, these sex robots that we want to develop, do you know who puts those things together? Poor, dexterous, i.e. women, in faraway places for rich white men. Cool. Now it's easy to lean into the con side and go, yeah, you sex robot morons. That's the easy part, and they are kind of dumb. Being smart makes you pretty stupid sometimes. You know that, you're pastors. Mm -hmm. well, what Paul is doing sounds something like this. You know, sickness and death is a problem. The only difference is that you all think that we have always gotten sick and died. But I want to tell you of a moment in time where that never happened and when that will never happen again. So what you want is absolutely right, and I'm with you. 
and seeing bodies as gender, gendered centers of power that are imbalanced and unequal. That's, I completely agree with you. Let me tell you about Jesus who provided salvation for slave and free, for men and women. Give the sex robot proponents exactly what they want by telling them about Jesus. <laughs> That's what Paul does. Notice in verse 24 through 27. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted places and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. Question, is this concession a refutation? Well, we'll keep reading, but I want to contend that this is 100% concession. He is not refuting anything yet. What he is doing is he is sowing the seeds of his refutation. But he's conceding this. I mean, of course we're all on the same page. Remember that concession is conceding apparent validity of an opponent's argument. So even something like this, I mean, God is super big, right? He's so big. Like, how could human hands ever contain him? And he's just kind of glancing back at the idol, right? He hasn't talked about the idol yet. Just standing over there. It's like, how foolish we would be to think that, like, we could ever do anything to, you know, just kind of glancing over his shoulder, not saying anything, though. God has placed us here. I mean, he made us. How could we ever make him? All the pagans are like, yeah, that's right. Or maybe, huh, that's interesting. Why did he do all of this? According to Paul, I'll read it again because it's rather provocative. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. You might think, nope, that's wrong. Because I've read Romans chapter 3, says right there, no one seeks after God. Paul wrote it. Now, of course, that's your problem more than that's my problem. Because Paul said both of them. But there is a problem here. I think we like the Romans 3 thing. The Acts 17 thing makes us uncomfortable. We can't just lean into one and deny the other, so what do we do with this? I think this is the way we reconcile them. In one sense, no one seeks after God, but the thing is, we all seek after God, we just all do it in exactly the wrong way. What do you think a sex robot user wants? They want God. Again, just like we've seen in the last two sermons, 
The reason why it's so hard to see God in the world is because we want to be God in the world. So they're not actually seeking after him, and nobody does by nature, but all of us get close, and that's the problem, is we can only ever get close, but what I want to tell you is that the searching of lost people matters. It matters. They're never going to find them unless God sovereignly or blah, blah. Yeah, okay, I know. But it matters. Stumbling around in the dark matters. You and I should pity lost people. You do, do you want to know why? Nailed it. This guy gets it. It's because they're lost. Like, do you actually believe that about lost people? I think most of us just think they're stupid. They're not. They're lost, dead in sin, blind, all the other things that the Bible says about them. Friends, they can't just think their way to heaven, and neither can you. We should appreciate their searching and orient them towards Jesus. Now that leading, that orientation might take a minute because Paul still doesn't do it. I hope you're feeling uncomfortable with what Paul is doing. And I'm just going to tell you right now, it's about to get real bad. And I mean real bad. Because he could have made the turn to Jesus now, but instead he decides to do the most ridiculous thing in the world. He decides to beef up the concession by quoting cultural artists. That's what he's doing here. In verse 28, In him we live and move and have our being. For we are all indeed his offspring. Here's the funny part about the Bible. The, the Bible sometimes just quotes things that we have in our possession. I'm going to read two very short sections of both of these poems. I want you to listen for, and this is not going to be difficult, listen for the common theme. Ready? Verse 28a, this is Epimenides, Minos, and Radmathus. In the middle of the poem, it says, A grave has been fashioned for thee, O Zeus, O holy and high one, the lying Cretans who are all the time liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, but you do not die, for to eternity you live and stand, for in you, Zeus, we live and move and have our being. You might have been like, hold on a second, there's another part I recognize there. That's right, Paul quotes it twice. He does it in Titus chapter 1, verse 12 as well. It's the greatest hits poem. Verse 28b, this is Eratus's Phinomia. From Zeus, let us begin. How do we mortals never leave? Unnamed, full of Zeus are all the streets and all the marketplaces of men, full as the sea and the heavens thereof. Always, we always have need of Zeus, for we are all his offspring. I mean, I could do this with seven-year-olds, but you just tell, 
We'll pretend like we're in church where I come from on the south side of Chicago. What's the repeated word? Oh, man. Okay, what's the repeated word? There we go. Yeah. Nailed it. Paul just subs in God. It's a profound act of subversion. They don't know it yet, but he is about to turn the corner and tear everything down. What are we to take away from this? Here's my question for you. Do you know the pagan artists that function as cultural authorities in your world? And do you use them positively for the purpose of telling them about Jesus? Do you weaponize them for good? And you go, what does this look like? Here we go. I got two examples, and uh, one of them is going to be much more comfortable than the other one. Here we go. It ain't about the fame. It ain't about the fortune. It ain't about the name. It ain't about the glory. It's good, right? Isn't it? Luke Combs, in his song, Doing This, which, by the way, is an awesome song. Now, the thing is, he's talking about himself. I need to talk about God. Yeah, I know, but just appreciate what's there. And you go, I can do that. That sounds pretty good. Now for the uncomfortable one. Beach House Vibes. Maneuver the jet ski, because I serve a God that parted the Red Sea. Multi-million dollar commercials from Pepsi, from food stamps to more ice than Gretzky. I don't got to talk, because my God defends me. Yeah, that's Nicki Minaj. Guest rapping on Tasha Cobb Leonard's I'm Getting Ready, which is one of the most popular false gospel songs in the world. It is 100% this prosperity garbage that is destroying where I live. But she ain't completely wrong, is she? I don't know, last time you preached about this parting of the Red Sea, but it didn't sound that cool. You might say, yeah, but there's wrong stuff in there, be it combs or menage. It's it's not all good. Exactly. That's the point. Concession for the purpose of refutation. If you just get up there, by the way, if most of you get up and start quoting Nicki Minaj this week, like A, don't, B, be careful, C, if you do it and get in trouble, don't blame me. Paul gets the concession up to this point, but now he turns the corner, and in verse 29 through 31, he completely flips everything on everybody in an act of profound refutation. Notice, 
There's three things that he does. Verse 29, he says this, on the basis of your authorities, God can't be imaged. Right there. Verse 29, being then, in other words, since you're pagan poets, which are awesome, say this, talking about Zeus, being then, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This makes no sense on the basis of your authorities. All of a sudden, water starts filling up the boat. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In other words, you were fine up until this moment, but now the whole world has changed. He's just punching holes in the bottom of the boat. Verse 31, in case you thought this was just a suggestion, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Back to Jesus and the resurrection. He's now kicked out the entire bottom of the boat and sunk everybody to the bottom. But he can only do it because he got in the boat. It's only at the very end that he gets specifically Christian. Now, I want to be very careful. If he would have done all of that but not ended in this way, he would not have been a Christian. He would have been an interesting spiritual authority, maybe a provocative speaker of a different kind of religion, but he would not have been Christian had he not gotten to that point. Now, there's lots of debate. I just want to tell you that there's lots of debate about this speech. And one of the reasons is because he doesn't get explicit about Jesus and the cross and all that kind of stuff. But you have to remember this. This is not a transcript. This is Luke's summary of what Paul did. I can almost promise you that Paul spoke longer than this. I don't know what he said, and it doesn't matter because Luke and God wanted us to have this. And I know that it worked. Not because I'm a genius or anything just because I read the Bible. But before we get to the outcomes, I want to ask you if that's what your preaching sounds like. I, I, I don't want you to just ask yourself that question today. I want you to look in the mirror every time you get up to preach on Sunday morning and imagine that there is a 14-year-old boy, this is what I do, 14-year-old boy who's maybe grown up in church his whole life, hates everything about what's going on, is sitting on the front row, and with every word that comes out of your mouth goes, so what? It's easier for me to do because that's who I was. But just imagine him standing there. Does he have any reason to believe? Have you gotten in his boat and then punched out the bottom? In a way that actually is caring for people. Because when you punch out the bottom, here's what you've got to understand. You're telling them the times of innocence are past, and I have now placed you in eternal peril. hard to do, but it's also necessary. So you might think, Jeremy, I've got so much to do. I mean, shoot, I'm here, and this is nice and everything, but 
you know, I got to do this business thing meeting tomorrow. I'm going to stick around for the dinner. I'm going to get home and I've probably got 42 phone calls to take care of. I got to get ready for church on Sunday. I'm just trying to do something so that I can keep this stupid thing afloat. Why should I put in all the time, all the effort and all the energy to do this kind of stuff? It's because of the outcomes, friends. We've seen the occasion, we've seen the oration, but I want to close on the outcomes right here in verses 32, 34. Here we learn that we should talk to everyone about Jesus on their terms because some will get saved. There's three outcomes. I want to tell you that none of them are failures. Outcome number one, some will mock us. That's verse 32. And they'll, notice, everybody hung with him until they got to the resurrection. Right there. says it right there. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And guess what? That makes sense. Why? Back to the beginning. Dead people stay dead. If people mock you, it makes sense. Just make sure they're mocking you for the right reason. They're mocking you because of Jesus and not because you have no clue about what they're facing. Some will mock us, but some will also want to hear more. That's the second part of verse 32. In other words, they'll have been moved toward faith. And some, thank God, verse 34, will believe. No reaction is a failure, and all of them are instru instructive. Make sure they mock you for the right reasons. Invite curious skeptics to keep asking questions and then actually receive their questions and then answer their questions. Don't just say it from up here because I'll tell you what, I heard my whole life, if you have questions, come talk to me. I was like, I got questions. They're like, you should just pray and have faith. And I went. And headed. Don't lie to unbelievers. I'd love to have you in my home and have dinner with you. You better get supper ready. Or they will walk away and say, Christians are liars. And they will have reason to do so. But skeptics are the best. Keep coming back. Keep asking questions. It's not a failure. And thank God, there's some. There aren't always many, but some people will end up believing. Never forget, friends, that salvation is always a miracle. If anybody ever comes back to your church next week, that's a miracle. I wish my church was growing. Look, somebody's showing up. Let's be honest. You're not that great. We live in a complicated time. We are confused. But I want you to know that we're not the only ones. Lost people are confused too. Not just lost in their sin, but lost in the world. We have the truth. We don't have to be scared. And we don't have to be jerks. We just have to talk to everyone about Jesus on their terms. And some get saved. Let's pray. God, give us confidence in your word. Give us confidence in your word 
as it works in our own lives. Give us confidence in your word as we seek to minister it to the church. Give us confidence in your word as we seek to minister to our world. Help us be biblically focused. In Jesus' name, amen.